in prayer. Father, we thank you today for the child that was born, not just any child, but God in the flesh. Father, your son came so that we might be saved from our sins. His name is Jesus, and that name speaks of the hope of salvation that we have in him. Father, may that ever be our focus this time of year. That Christ came to save sinners. Father, there is so much busyness, particularly as we approach the day in which we celebrate your birth. And there's so many distractions, so many things that vie for our attention. And even now, Father, there are other concerns and cares on our minds, even at this moment. Father, we ask today that you would quiet our hearts, calm our anxieties and concerns, and Father, guide and direct us to your word today. May your spirit open your eternal word to our hearts. May we be challenged, may we be encouraged, and may we be changed by your grace through your word today. We pray this all in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. We're taking a little break from Zephaniah. um, But we'll see, I think, some commonality between what we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 3 and what we've been seeing the prophets calling us to. I'd like us to discuss today how we can prepare for Christmas. Preparing for Christmas. You know, there's a, a lot of preparation that goes into our celebrations around uh, the advent of Christ. Um, and a lot of times that focus and preparation is on external things. We'll talk about making sure we get the decorations up. We'll talk about making sure we get all the the presents together. Hold on. I don't know if that's me or not. Right, you're awake now? All right. Maybe cut this and we'll use the pulpit mic. These are the joys of uh, having a a church underneath a high-tension wire. (laughs) So there's a lot that we focus on, presents, decorations, preparing the cookies, getting the food together. Um, And while these traditions in and of themselves are not necessarily wrong, when they become the focus of our preparation at this time of year, we're missing out on what truly is important. If this remains our only preparation for the celebration of Christ coming into the world, we truly have not prepared as we ought. You can have all the decorations up. You can have all the presents wrapped. You can have all the ham cooked. But unless you truly prepare by examining your heart and repenting of your sin and looking to the Christ who we celebrate His coming into the world, then we have not prepared as we ought. Reality is, is there's so many things vying for our attention, even outside of this time of year. Our world is set up to distract us from that which is really important. And so, at this time of year, I'd like us to consider how we can prepare for Christmas By preparing to know Christ. Prepare for Christmas by preparing to know Christ. Look with me in Matthew chapter 3. We're going to read the entire passage this morning. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, 
Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. John, in many ways, is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And as I was considering what we were going to be looking at this Sunday and next Sunday, I just found this connection with John as we've been studying Zephaniah so clear that I couldn't deny and move past it. As we've been seeing in Zephaniah, the prophet's primary message was to call Israel, to call God's people to repentance. To call them to turn from their sins and to find their hope not in themselves, not even in their repentance, but in the one who would come, the Messiah. And so John the Baptist comes on the scene right before Jesus begins his ministry for the express purpose of reminding Israel again of their need of repentance. After the book of Malachi, after Malachi's prophecy is over, we have a closing of the Old Testament canon. And there is 400 years where there was not a prophet among Israel. The Lord did not speak through the prophets at that time until John comes on the scene. And the message is the same. Israel had had 400 years to reflect upon and to consider what the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi had said. And the problem was still the same. They needed to repent and to turn to the Messiah. In fact, as we read this morning in our scripture reading, when John's birth was being announced to his father, there was a clear connection between John the Baptist and the Old Testament prophets. Again, look what he says in Luke 1. He will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. What's really important to note there is that we see the very kernel seed truth of what repentance is. It is to turn from sin and to turn to the Lord. 
He will go before him in spirit and in the spirit and power of Elijah, that connection with the Old Testament prophets, the first of the Old Testament prophets. And his purpose will be to fulfill what was spoken at the very end of Malachi, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And this is all done to make what? Ready for the Lord, a people prepared. John's purpose is to prepare Israel, to prepare God's people for the coming of Christ. He is one who speaks from the Spirit. As Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke for God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. John had the Spirit from the minute he was conceived. In the womb, he had the Spirit. And he was fulfilling that Old Testament prophecy of Malachi, that Elijah, the prophet, would come before them before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And Jesus himself confirms that all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, John, he is Elijah who is to come. He fulfilled Malachi's prophecy to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. That there would be a visible change among God's people so that the very foundations of society, the family, would be restored. And if that didn't happen, God would come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is John's responsibility. This is John's purpose. And it is necessary for us to be reminded of what it means to prepare for Christ. So I'd like us to consider three things this morning and then one thing next week about what is required to prepare for Christmas. And all the busyness This often gets shuffled away into that which is not important, and yet it is the most vitally important thing for us this time of year. How can we prepare for Christmas by preparing for Christ? We prepare, first of all, with repentance. We prepare for Christ with repentance. And what is repentance? Well, It's interesting, as we've seen what John was doing, he was baptizing people. And as the people were coming from all the region of Jerusalem and Judea and about Jordan, they were coming to the river Jordan to be baptized by him. And they were doing something. What does he say they were doing in verse 6? They were confessing their sins. We repent first and foremost by confessing our sins. Now, We know John is John the Baptist, and I would love nothing more than to say he was the first Baptist, but he was not a Baptist in the way that we we think of it today. He was John, probably more, more correctly described as John the Baptizer. Because he was known as somebody who went about baptizing people. And what what is this baptism that he's doing? It is different than the baptism we celebrate, that we observe as we follow the Lord's example in baptism. It was, it was completely different from that. There we are seeking to show our union with Christ. But here, John is likely taking up a, um, a practice that had become commonplace among the Jews in the first century. Now, we know that the law had particular laws for ritual cleansing. So that if someone were to come in contact with a dead animal or if they were to contact something that was unclean, they had to go and and particularly wash themselves in a particular way so that they could clean off the uncleanness that they had gotten in contacting something that was unclean. As we look to the late first century BCE, what we end up finding is that this activity had been expanded, in particular with a community known as the Qumran community. Some of you maybe have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls came from the Qumran community. Now, this was an almost cultic sect of, of Jewish practice. It was not in the lines of what Scripture itself uh, had called to do, but one of the things that they did was they were 
very, very uh, emphasizing this idea of cleansing. And in particular, if you wanted to become a part of the Qumran community, you had to be baptized or immersed in water. And so that particular practice had some meaning. It had the idea of cleansing. But what's interesting here is that John's baptism is not like the cleansing of uh, the uncleanness that comes from touching something outside of ourselves, but rather John's baptism was a symbol of the need for cleansing within. They came confessing, not that they had touched something else that was unclean, they confessed their own sins. So that the stain, that the pollution of sin was not outside, but within them. And so the very sin that poisons you from the inside out was sought to be shown in a symbol of baptism, washing that away. And it was through this baptism that you prepared the way for the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, to come and to dwell with His people. The outward act serves as a model of what the inward act truly was, confessing our sins. And so as we come to look upon and remember the coming of Christ into the world, it is an opportunity for us to first see His glory, see the sinless Savior born into the world. And it is also an opportunity for us to examine ourselves and to see what sin resides within us. This word confession has at its very basic root meaning the idea of to say the same thing as. Here the term means to specifically confess out of yourself. So in, in the original, there's a, a preposition placed on top of this word, word that has the idea of taking what's within and confessing it outwardly. Hence the act of baptism, an outward act of what you are seeking to confess within. It's to reveal what is hidden within yourself. In fact, this was a practice very common in the first century church. Acts 19.18. Also, many of those who were now believers came. And as they came to the church, they came together. One of the things that naturally happened for those who were believers, those who knew Christ, is they did what? They confessed their sins. They divulged their practices. We have to recognize that the coming of the Lord will always produce Confession. Look at what the writer of Hebrews tells us. If the Lord is coming, we have to realize that no creature is hidden from his sight. But every single one of us are naked and exposed to his eyes, and he is the one to whom we must give account. And there will be a day when Christ comes again in his second advent, and on that day, there will be the day where we will, every one of us, confess to God. Notice what Paul says in Romans 14, 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ or God. For it is written, written, as I live, says the Lord. How many knees? Every knee will bow, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is an undeniable fact. You cannot avoid this. There's no person in this room that will be able to skip that day when you bow before the Lord and give an account of your life before Him. And so John comes giving this baptism for confession to prepare the way for the Lord. In other words, let's take care of this before that day. Let's confess and reveal our sins before the Lord. God knows everything already. He knows what's in your heart at this moment. He knows every errant word you've ever said. He knows every sinful thought you've ever had. He knows 
everything about you. You cannot hide from his gaze. And as we consider God made flesh, the one who knows all things coming into the world. We can prepare and remember that by looking to ourselves, looking within and revealing to him, confessing to him our sins. In fact, the, the echo of Zephaniah is seen in many of these passages. God is coming on his great day, and on that day, it will be a day of judgment. It will be a day of wrath. It will be a day of destruction for those who turn away from the Lord. And there will be a day, as Paul speaks of, where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that will be a day where knees will bow unwillingly, but they will still bow. So we can take the message of John and seek to confess our sins willingly. That we should expose our sin before, declaring that we're in agreement with his condemnation of our sin. We talk of the gospel as good news, and it is good news. It's glorious news. But the gospel does not become good news until we first understand the bad news. That each and every one of us has rebelled against a holy and righteous God. And as we hear in the echoes of the law, as we hear in the echoes of the prophets, as we hear in John's own voice, there are consequences for rebelling against God. So what should we do? Begin with confession. Preparing for Christ and understanding that God's assessment of who we are is right. And that only God can provide this cleansing. Notice what Ezekiel says. God promises that in the new covenant, he will sprinkle Clean water on us. And we'll be clean from how much of our uncleanness? All of it. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. And as we're going to see at the beginning of the year in Zephaniah, Zephaniah speaks of the day where God is going to change our speech of the peoples, not to a solely dirty speech, but to a speech that is what? Pure. And when we have that pure speech changed by, the God, by God's grace at work in our lives, we will call upon the name of the Lord and we will serve Him together in one accord. This year, when you think of the Holy Lord of the universe coming to earth, remember that you are a sinner. Remember that you are Still a sinner. Remember the thoughts you had on Monday when you got up and you sought to not glorify the Lord with your life but to live for yourself. Or Tuesday when the co-worker bothered you and, and, and your communication became sullied. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, day after day, Sin dwells within us so that we confess like Paul, we are wretched men. But there's the wonderful hope that the scripture tells us. That if we confess our sins, our Lord is faithful and just to do what? To forgive and to cleanse us from all sin. So as John comes and his message in verse 2 is repent. Repent begins by confessing your sin. Secondly, we need to repent by turning from ourselves. We need to repent by turning from ourselves. 
as John's ministry begins to make waves in the area, in Judea and Jerusalem, into the entire area of the Jordan, specifically as it begins to gain acclaim in Jerusalem, there are now some concerns with the religious elite of the day. The scribes and the Pharisees have to sort of look and see what's going on, and so they make their way down to the Jordan River. And the implication here is that they're coming themselves to be baptized by John. They come, though, not in a full awareness of their sin. They don't come seeking to expose what they've done to the others and to, and to, uh, and to the Lord. Rather, they come to see if they can somehow profit from their connection with John. They want to use John. They, they want to go through the motions so that they can still hold sway over the people because John had a huge following. And again, the message of Zephaniah rings clear here as he discusses and exposes the corruption of the religious ruling class in Israel. 400 years earlier, things haven't changed. And so I, I can imagine the scene here as, as John is, is baptizing people and, and perhaps there's a line of people going down into the Jordan and, and he baptizes one person, another person, he baptizes another and up comes someone and then he sees a Pharisee who's making his phylacteries broad, showing off his spirituality. He's there not because he's genuinely seeking to, take, to, to seek to expose his sin before the Lord, but he's there to make himself be seen by others. And so John, again filled with the Spirit, speaks very kindly and compassionately to them, doesn't he? Look at what he says in verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves we have Abraham as our father for I tell you God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham or for Abraham what we see John putting his finger on is these Pharisees were all about themselves they loved the place of prestige they loved the acclaim of people. They loved to practice their righteousness in front of other people's eyes so that they could be seen by all. And Jesus tells us they have a reward. And that reward is that other people see them. But when we talk about confession, whose eyes are we most concerned with as seeing us? It's not other men, it's God. And so John challenges them and says they need to turn from their identity. They need to turn from the very thing that gives them pride. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Sadducee. They need to turn away from resting on their position and their heritage and recognize what they truly are, a brood, a nest of snakes. All the self-nighteousness that they heaped up upon themselves because of their life and their, their, their heritage as the religious leaders of God's people would mean a lick of nothing before a holy and righteous God. They need to radically alter their identity. And that's why John comes at them and says, listen, you presume... To call yourself a child of Abraham. This was a problem that even Paul himself, before he knew Christ, had. He says he was a Jew of the Jews, a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was of the right tribe. He had all the credentials. He had everything put in place. And yet, his identity is radically altered by Christ so that he can look back on that. And what does he call all of that? 
It's dung. It's useless. And so that's what John charges these Pharisees with recognizing. They needed to radically alter their identity. They needed inward transformation, not just simply going through the motions of being baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus himself spoke of the Pharisees this way. Notice what he called them. Same thing. You brood of vipers. Then he puts his finger on what their problem is. How can you speak good when you are what? Evil. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so as we remember Christ's birth, we have to remember we need to turn from ourselves. This, combined with the idea of confession, is exactly the attributes of a people that God seeks to save. Notice what Jesus says in Luke 5. He says, those who are well, you know what they don't need? They don't need a doctor. They don't need a physician. But those who are sick, they're the ones who need physicians. And then who does Jesus come to save? Who does Jesus come to save? Sinners. Not the righteous. Jesus doesn't come to rescue you from your, to, to rescue you and let you continue to be self-righteous about it. He comes to transform you. And so the words of John to these Pharisees are necessary for us as we consider Christ in the flesh. He comes to save. But he saves those who have confessed and turned from who they are. We live in a world today that is obsessed with identity. We do it around characteristics of, of gender. We do it around characteristics of ethnicity. We do it around characteristics of sexuality. I mean, that is everything in our society today. Identity. Who are you? And John comes to these Pharisees who their identity was the leaders of the Jews. And he says, you need to get over yourself. You need to turn from trusting in yourself and your identity. You need to recognize who you really are. A sinner. The God who cleanses those who confess also transforms those. Changing us from who we are in sin to reflect who Christ is in his righteousness. Notice what Ezekiel says about the, new, about the new birth, the new covenant. He has cleansed us and he gives us what? A new heart. He puts a new spirit within us. He removes the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. He puts his spirit within us and causes us to walk in his statutes and to be careful to obey his rules. That's becoming a completely different person. And so we need to seek to turn for, for more and more away from ourselves and more and more to Christ. Repentance requires confession. Repentance requires turning, turning from self. And then how do we exhibit true repentance. We exhibit it by bearing good fruit. It's interesting what John does here in putting his finger on the Pharisees' problems. He says, you brood of vipers, again we're in verse 7, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then here's his challenge to them, verse 8. What are they supposed to do? Bear fruit that accords with repentance. Listen, repentance is not simply a matter of lip service. Nor is it just a matter of even going through the motions. These Pharisees seemingly were going to get baptized in the Jordan. 
Genuine confession, which produces a genuine turning from self, will result in a different way of life. It is inevitable. Jesus himself calls the Pharisees to this very thing in Matthew 12, 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. Because the tree is known by its what? Its fruit. You know, we have a tree out here that drops acorns. That would make it a what? A what? A good, well, what type of tree? Huh? An acorn tree. <laughs> right? how, do you, how do you know the tree? By its fruit. We, you know, we lived in South Carolina. South Carolina is known for having the best peaches in the world. Sorry, Georgia. South Carolina has the best peaches. You know how we knew when we were at a, at a peach tree? What was on the, what was on the tree? Acorn. <laughs> Acorn. <laughs> Peaches. And you know what I, you know what I could do? I could, I could go out here to this tree out here, and I could, I could go to the store. I'd go to Costco and buy peaches in bulk. And I could, I could tape them on with that green tape. I could tape them on to this tree out here. And then you guys could come in and you would see the, the fruit and you'd say, oh, suddenly this tree has been transformed into a peach tree. How many of you are going to buy that? I mean, you might can eat the peaches, but. My fear is that so often our experience of the Christian life is doing that very thing. Tying on fruit without genuine change. But the obverse is the, is the problem as well. So many times we will say that we are a Christian, but our fruit doesn't line up with that. John points to these Pharisees and he calls them out and says, look, if you're really going to be genuine about your repentance, if, if you mean what you're doing here, it will be evident. Bear fruit that accords with your repentance. Bear fruit that shows that you've confessed your sin. Bear fruit that shows you've turned from self. Live a completely different life. As we consider the message of Christmas, as we consider Christ's coming, and as we consider that His coming provides hope that He can dwell within us, Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, we must remember that repentance is necessary. This was the first word of John's message. What is it? Verse 2. Repent. He's saying the same thing that the prophets were saying. And you know when Jesus begins his ministry, you know what the first word out of his mouth is? Repent. So we must remember that repentance is necessary. Christmas offers us the opportunity to freshly examine ourselves. Have we prepared for Christ to come and to dwell in our hearts through the seeking of that genuine repentance? A genuine repentance that sees our sins clearly and confesses them that turns from our own righteousness and our own self-righteous efforts and responds with works that accord with genuine repentance. But that is not all John seeks to do here. The message of the gospel is twofold. It begins with repentance, but it does not end there. I fear that in many times, we have neglected, the problem with Christianity and Christian groups is we neglect one or, one or the other side of the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel is repent, but then there's a second call, and it is to do what? Believe. And so while we are called to do these things, we have to prepare by looking to the Lord with faith. Even as 
Paul reminded us in Ephesians chapter 3, Christ dwells in our hearts, not by repentance, but by what? By faith. And so this is what John seeks to point his, these crowds to. He says, first of all, we must prepare with faith by trusting in Christ because he is greater. He is greater. John actually points to the own limitations of his ministry. He says in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. He recognizes that what he's doing is preparing the way for the Lord, but John is not the Savior, nor should people be looking to him as the Savior. The waters he immerses the crowd in are only water. But then notice what he says. He says in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. There is someone who is greater and stronger than John, and it is Christ John stands in the tradition of the prophets of old as he points people to the Messiah. And so he does here as well. John is but a voice crying in the wilderness. He's but a man made of flesh and bone and tied to this world. But Christ is one who comes from outside the material universe. He's one who in his incarnation steps into our humanity and is made in our likeness for the purpose of saving us. Only Christ, only the Son can do this because he is mightier. And John points the crowds to him. There is someone who is coming who is mightier than I. And John actually speaks of how he is not even worthy to carry his sandals. Now there are two important things that we can take from John's pointing to Christ. And the first is that there is only ever to be one object of our faith that saves, and it is Jesus. Faith must never be placed in the things of this world or the people of this world. If you look to men, men will always fail you. Always. And the reality is we have a tendency to do this, to look to men for our hope. We do it with politics, right? This is the candidate who's going to make things better. How's that worked out so far? We do it with our relationships. As if I can only have this, if I can only have this person, I'll be happy. We do it with religion. This pastor or this church leader is the one who really helps me. But if that's where our faith is placed, we will be disappointed every single time. In fact, John himself faltered. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 19. The disciples of John, being sent by John himself, reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, I'm not trying to be too critical of John here. He's in jail, and he's about to lose his head. I understand where he's coming from, but even John faltered in his faith. Where will your hope be for your faith if it's settled in men and then they fail you? What do you do when... The people you look to fail you. There's hope found in a Christ who never fails you. And let's be honest, the, the person that we are most prone to trust in the most is the person we see when we look in a mirror. 
We cannot trust in men. And then secondly, we must be humble before the mighty one. John's example here clearly points us to that reality. We trust in Christ for he is greater. He is the only one worthy of our confidence. Secondly, we trust in Christ because he transforms. Notice what John says he does. This one who is mightier than I, he will baptize you. But he won't baptize you with water like John the Baptist baptizes you. He will baptize you with something infinitely better. He will immerse you in what? The Holy Spirit. He will immerse you in the Holy Spirit. And this will transform you. It will change you from the inside out. Confession speaks to where we are before God. The Spirit reminds us of who we are in Christ. The Spirit transforms us completely. John was a prime example of this. Right? John had the Spirit upon him from his mother's womb. Now, just to note, that is not normative to the, the human experience. John was special here. And how did he live? Was John different? Oh, yeah. Wore weird clothing, ate bugs and honey. I mean, I can do with the honey, but the locust stuff. He was set apart unto the Lord because the Spirit was with him. And what, what Jesus comes to do as we trust in him is he transforms us completely by immersing us in the Spirit. So that no longer do we see the Spirit poured out on others, but the Spirit, as Joel prophesies, is poured out on everyone, on all flesh, so that the old and the young will have the Spirit working within them. This is the very thing that makes God's people different than the Pharisees. It's the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who takes us from death to life. Titus tells us about that in chapter 3, verse 5. The Spirit makes us holy. Paul speaks of this in Romans 15. The Spirit transforms us. Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And all those who believe in Christ receive this baptism. Christ is the one who gives us the Spirit. And the Spirit is the one who dwells within us. The Spirit in full measure is given to us. So we must recognize that faith in Christ always produces transformation. But it's not a transformation that we produce by our strength. It is a transformation of the Spirit that we are immersed in, changing us completely. And then finally, we trust in Christ because He will judge. Notice what He says that Christ will baptize with. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit, but there's another thing he's going to baptize with. Fire. John is not speaking, as some people have said, to the fiery uh, tongues that appeared over the apostles' heads at Pentecost. In fact, we, we don't even know what they truly were because Luke tells us that they appeared as fire. It wasn't actually fire itself. In fact, in context, John is saying that that Jesus will do two baptisms, one of grace and giving the Spirit, and one of wrath. And notice what he says about this wrath. Look at verse 12. He describes Christ as a harvester with a winnowing fork in his hand, clearing his threshing floor, gathering the wheat into the barn, but the chaff, those that are not his people, he takes them and burns them with what type of fire? Unquenchable fire. Earlier on, as, as, as John confronts the religious leaders, he tells them that the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so John is warning, just as Isaiah and Daniel and Elijah and Zephaniah have been warning God's people, if you persist in rejecting the Lord, there is a consequence of His wrath. 
And so John prepares the way for Christ by reminding his hearers that there is a blessing found in trusting in the Lord so that rather than being baptized by his fire, you can be baptized by the Spirit. So we can prepare for Christmas for remembering his first advent by looking to his second advent when he returns again and finding it not as a day of, of terror, but as a day of hope where he will transform his people and save us forever. How can we prepare, prepare for Christ? How can we prepare for Christmas? Repent and believe. You know, it's amazing to me how simple the message is of Scripture. We find this message all throughout the Bible. But do we ever truly take it into our hearts and consider it clearly? This Christmas, in the midst of all the busyness, as you've got one more week of shopping left until Christmas, As you think about the preparations for food and for family that's coming into town and, or maybe places you're going, don't forget to prepare by considering yourself, confessing your sins, turning from yourself and seeking to live a life that accords with the grace of God so that you look like someone who has been immersed in the Spirit of God. So that, that your life is seen to be transformed because your hope is found not in yourselves, but in Christ who is greater. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. And we pray, Lord, that you would work in our midst by your spirit. Take these truths and apply them. To